You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. When it comes to phishing, those types of behavioral traits are really what phishing attacks exploit. Trust is a big one, fear and anxiety are some other ones, and those are sort of behavioral characteristics that are ingrained in our human behavior about who we are, and it's very hard to override those. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some fun stories to share this week, and later in the show, we'll have my interview with Crane Hasseld from Agari. He's going to share some trends that they're tracking when it comes to phishing, and he's also going to share his his experiences as a former FBI agent. And we are back. Joe, before we get into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up. Good. We've got uh, a listener named Angela wrote in, and she said, Hi, I've become interested in using my psychology background to go into social engineering-related cybersecurity, and I love the Hacking Humans podcast. Well, thank you, Angela. Yes, indeed. I have a BA in psychology and an MA in clinical mental health counseling, and I have some criticisms of your January 31st episode. (gasps) That was the excitement of tricking someone wears off quickly. That was our conversation with Jordan Harbinger. I was hoping this was going to be a good letter. (laughs) I think it is a good letter. She says, says, I want there to be more dialogue between psychology and tech. And I have to tell you the idea that the cognitive dissonance of scamming will weigh on someone too much eventually, unfortunately, is very untrue. Hmm. Humans are incredibly good at dealing with cognitive dissonance. We do it constantly. It's always easier to see it when it's someone else. And then she says, I recommend the recent episode of the Hidden Brain podcast, A Founding Contradiction, which has a detailed discussion of this. I would concur that Hidden Brain is an excellent podcast worth checking out if you have not already. I'm not just saying that because my friend Tara happens to be the producer of that show, but uh, (laughs) it's a good (laughs) one. Because it's actually a good show. It is a really good show, yeah. So Angela goes on to say, psychology isn't as common sense as you think. I have another gripe with your episode, a bit of a petty gripe, I'll admit, but something I'm very passionate about was dismissed. Something was said about there being no such thing as parenting science, but that isn't true. Developmental psychology is parenting science. Unfortunately, evidence-based findings of developmental psychology take a long time to enact changes in how children are treated. For example, sleep experts and developmental psychologists agree that the schedule high schoolers are expected to follow is counter to their sleep needs. But I digress. She says, I know psychology and tech have a lot to learn from each other, and I'm hoping to head things in that direction in my career. I agree 100% that psychology and tech have a lot to learn from each other. Yeah. And I've actually said things on this podcast to that effect. Like uh, there was something a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember, Dave. We go through so much stuff here <laughs> that something could be quantified in the field of psychology, that there's probably some psychological research that could be done on something, mm-hmm. uh, some behavioral analysis. Yeah. Thank you for writing in, Angela. I also vehemently agree with you about merging the two and, and think that the human factor in security is often overlooked even now. And we need to put an end to that. I would welcome you into the field happily. (laughs) All right. Terrific. Well, yes, I I concur. Thanks, Angela, for writing in. Certainly a worthwhile point of view. And we appreciate you giving us your perspective on this. I think it's an important one. So uh, thanks for writing in. 
All right, Joe, it's time for my story. This comes from a listener named Nathan. He said, I hear examples of phishing messages received by listeners on the Hacking Humans podcast, and I think the one I've sent in is illustrative of some trends. So let me get to what he sent here. This is an email message from Tufts University, Mm -hmm. or it alleges to be from Tufts University, and we see the Tufts University seal here, and it says, Congratulations, Nathan. Tufts University has recognized you for earning a spot on the Dean's List during fall 2018. Click on the link below to view your achievement. And then there's a link below that says, view my my achievement. achievement. (laughs) And then there's some other things that help make it look legitimate. There's a logo for the uh, Apple App Store, for the Google Play Store. There's some links to some things that have the words Tufts University in them. But turns out this is not actually from Tufts. And uh, Nathan goes on to write. He says, this would have totally fooled me. He says, I did, in fact, make the dean's list last semester and received a standard notification about it. And I also was informed when I came here that there were some systems in place for sending meaningless stories about students to news organizations, which Hmm. looks like this. He says, when I received this message, I thought it was a genuine notification and immediately deleted it because I didn't need to see anything. Only later was it reported that this is a scam and pointed out that the mail address doesn't exist. Might I have checked the authenticity of the link? Maybe. But I was saved from whatever is at the other end by not suspicion, but more because I didn't care. Hmm. The people behind this one are pretty good. I'm a computer science major specializing in security, and yet I had very little suspicion about this message. Interesting. Yeah, what do you make of this one, Joe? I, this is a good, well-crafted. I agree with Nathan on this one. They give you the actual full text of the link, and it starts with HTTPS colon slash slash Tufts dot meritpages.com. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what meritpages.com is. And then it has a long URL that says Nathan's name recognized for academic excellence at Tufts University and then has some numbers after it. I almost want to check it out. <laughs> to see what it is. Not on my network, you don't. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> yeah, obviously. And of course, Tufts is a well-respected university. Yep. I mean, they're no Johns Hopkins, right, Joe? But, well, of course uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> Who is? <laughs> but, uh, oh my. <laughs> here, here we go. Now, please don't write us. Please don't write us. Please don't write us. Yeah, this certainly looks like the real thing. Now, it's interesting. I suppose the Dean's List is a list that's made public, you think? Is I that- don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is. It could be made public. It could be that there's somebody on the inside that got the information. It may be something you can buy from the university. Oh, that's interesting. It seems like something the university would crow about, would put out a press release that says, congratulations to these students who made the dean's list last semester. I will bet that it is public. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Well, that's my story this week. Nathan, thanks for sending that out. It's an interesting, a little different than anything we've seen before. It's really interesting that Nathan actually is on the dean's list and that he got this. Right. So... Right. So I, it's it is targeted. Yeah, it's definitely targeted. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my story. Joe, what do you have this week? My story this week comes from Derek Johnson over at FCW.com. There's an agency called FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Okay. And FHFA oversees Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Federal Home Loan Bank System. And they had an external penetration test last year in 2018. Okay. Overall, the report was good. They weren't able to exploit anything on on the inside, although I don't know how tough this test was. I I didn't actually see the test. Right. But there was one key statistic that stood out. They selected 50 employees for a phishing test. Now, it's a small agency. In 2017, according to their annual report, they had 630 employees. Okay. So that's a little less than 10%. 17, that's 34% 
of the employees failed the phishing test. Hmm. What's what's a little more disconcerting about this is that if you read the redacted report, and it's really redacted, actually. Um, <laughs> it's highly redacted. <laughs> it, it, it's more highly redacted, I think, than it needs to be, but okay. I don't know. I, I, I That's just me speculating. Yeah. Only three people reported the suspicious email to their spam system. Oh. So you got something going on here where you, you have this small agency with a civilian role in the banking industry, right? Right. It's, it's a pretty, I would think... Good target for scammers to try to get in there to try to get some information. Yeah. I don't know how they're related to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and the other the home loan banking system, but I would imagine that it's a significant way. It might be a foothold to get into those other organizations and, I don't know, get hold of a lot of personal information of people. Hmm. Now, it's interesting to me that, as you said, only three people reported the phishing attempt. Right. But those three people not been in the same group of people who failed the phishing attempt. Because to me, the people who reported it would right. have been people who didn't fall for it. Correct. Is that yeah, I would, I would assume that that's line the of case. thinking? Yeah, yeah. That, that you have 17 people that failed the phishing test, three people that reported the phishing attempt, and 30 people that did nothing, which is probably the best course of action. But if you see it, you should probably report it. I, I don't think you'd get the same results if you ran the same test at, say, the National Security Agency. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, or the FBI. I would I, hope not. I would think you would get different results. I would not be surprised to find similar results in similar organizations like the Social Security Administration mm. or other civilian-leaning agencies or administrations within the government. So you're saying probably organizations whose missions do not revolve around security and yeah. awareness of those sorts of things. Right. They would probably be more susceptible to this. And I'll bet if you tested these other organizations, you'd find similar results. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll have a link to the write-up on this for folks who want to check it out. But it's time to move on to our catch of the day. And this week's catch of the day comes from a listener named Chris. Chris sent this into us. This is a good one. This comes from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Anti-Terrorist and Monetary Crime Division. Sure it does. International Monetary Funds. You know, Joe, that's at the J. Edgar Hoover Building in Washington, D.C. I've been down to the IMF. <laughs> well, it goes like this. Dear Beneficiary, Series of meetings have been held over the past seven months with the Secretary General of the United Nations Organization. This ended three days ago. It is obvious that you have not received your fund, which is to the tune of $2.3 million USD due to past corrupt governmental officials who almost held the fund to themselves for their selfish reason. And some individuals who have taken advantage of your fund all in an attempt to swindle your fund, which has led to so many losses from your end and unnecessary delay in the receipt of your fund. Those jerks. The National Central Bureau of Interpol, enhanced by the United Nations and Federal Bureau of Investigation and the International Monetary Funds, have successfully passed a mandate to the current president of... Nigeria, His Excellency President Muhammad Buhari to boost the exercise of clearing all foreign debts owed to you and other individuals and organizations who have found not to have received their contract sum, lottery slash gambling, inheritance and the likes. Now, how would you like to receive your payment? Because we have two method of payment, which is by check or by ATM card. 
ATM card, we will be issuing you a custom pin-based ATM card, which you will use to withdraw up to $5,000 per day from any ATM machine that has the MasterCard logo on it, and the card will have to be renewed in four years' time, which is 2022. Also, with the ATM card, you will be able to transfer your funds to your local bank. The ATM card comes with a handbook or manual to enlighten you about how to use it, even if you do not have a bank account. Or by check, to be deposited in your bank for it to be cleared within three working days. Your payment would be sent to you via any of your preferred options and would be mailed to you via UPS. Because we have signed a contract with UPS, which should expire in the next three weeks, you will only need to pay $500 instead of $1,200, saving you $700. Fortunately, how about that? So if you pay before the three weeks, you save $700. Take note that anyone asking you for some kind of money above the usual fee is definitely a fraudsters. (laughs) (laughs) And you will have to stop any communication with every other person if you have been in contact with any. Also remember that all you will ever have to spend is $500, nothing more, nothing less. And we guarantee the receipt of your fund to be successfully delivered to you within the next 24 hours after the receipt of payment has been confirmed. Note, everything has been taken care of by the federal government of Nigeria, (laughs) the International Monetary Funds, the United Nations, and also the FBI, and including taxes, custom paper, and clearance duty, so all you will ever need to pay is $500. (laughs) (laughs) Do not send money to anyone until you read this. The actual fees for shipping your ATM card is $700, but because UPS have temporarily discontinued the COD, which gives you the chance to pay when packages delivered for international shipping, we had to sign contract with them for bulk shipping, which makes the fees reduced from the actual fee of $1,200 to $500, nothing more, and no hidden fees of any sort. To affect the release of your fund valued at 2.3 million U.S. dollars, you are advised to contact your correspondent in Africa, the delivery officer, Mr. Stephen Munchen. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. I, I'm so glad here. that we can get such a great bargain <laughs> on uh, on shipping our, our ATM card well, or a check to us, When Dave. you're sending millions of dollars around the world, you can probably strike a good deal with UPS. Yeah for a discount on the shipping to only pay $500. I, I like how it, it does have this artificial time constraint that, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't send us a $500 within three weeks, you're going to have to send us $1,200. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a call to action there, the, the right. time pressure. I, I like the convenience of being able to have an ATM card. I wonder what the scam side of that is, being able to withdraw five grand a day from the card. I suspect you'll have to provide them with some banking information. Uh, I, I think it's just just you send them the five hundred bucks and that's it, and that's the end of the scam. Oh, you think? You, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, think I, I can't help but wondering though if they get you for the five hundred bucks, if they're going to try to string you along for more than that. Oh, they, sure. If they, they got a hot one. Yeah, you know? that's that's exactly what they do. They like I like I said last week, they're gonna they've struck oil and they're gonna pump to the wells dry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, that's a fun one. Thanks, Chris, for sending that in. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Crane Hasseld from Agari. He's going to share what they are seeing when it comes to fishing, and he's going to share his experiences as a former FBI agent. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Crane Hasseld. He is from Agari. And at Agari, they do a lot of tracking when it comes to social engineering, fishing, and those sorts of things. So he's going to share some of the things they've seen there. But Crane was also, before he was at Agari, he was an FBI agent. So he's got some interesting stories to share from that part of his life as well. Here's my interview with Crane Hasseld. 
one of the things that I think that we're seeing is a big shift just in the general threat landscape for phishing from individual consumers to enterprises. And really, I think part of that has to come from what we've seen in the past couple of years. Starting with ransomware that we saw in 2016, that's where the shift really began. But really what threat actors are seeing is that they can use the information and the accounts that they obtain from businesses in a more diverse fashion, as well as they can be more financially lucrative. So are the tactics different? A little bit. Really, when we're looking at uh, enterprise phishing threats, you know, we are conditioned to see cyber threats as technical. But really, when it comes to enterprise-focused phishing threats, a lot of those are very non-technical in nature. So BEC, the CEO fraud types of attacks, and general credential phishing attacks are really the more common types of attacks targeting businesses. And what are your recommendations for folks to best protect themselves? How much of it is a a technical solution? How much of it is training and awareness? So a lot of it has to do with awareness and not just, you know, having security awareness training, but, but getting people to stop and think and pause for a second about what they're doing when they receive an email. You know, so as technology has sort of ingrained our lives, we see emails every single day and we just react to them every single day, every single time we get one of these things, and we never really think about it. And so I think having people and employees stop and think about clicking on a link or is this coming from the right place really makes up a lot of the protection that we see. Now, before joining Agari, you had uh, some time you spent with the FBI, and you helped spin up uh, the FBI's Cyber Behavioral Analysis Center. Can you take us through what was the origin of that project? So behavioral analysis or profiling has been around in the FBI for decades now. And you know, when it first started, it started as looking at violent criminal offenders like serial killers and things like that. And it's evolved over time. And there was a team that looked at counterterrorism. There was a team that looked at counterintelligence. And in 2012, we saw the need to create a team that looked at cyber-based threats. And so myself and two other individuals sort of built that team back in 2012 as a way to sort of take the traditional concepts that have been used for decades in the violent crime world uh, for behavioral analysis and apply those to cyber adversaries. Can you describe to us uh, what were some of the concepts that came from the violent crime world? So a lot of the concepts are the same, just looking at it in a different perspective. So I'll give you an example. So one of the things that we did in CBAC was what we called malware author profiling. So that is essentially looking at the code in malware and understanding the uh, sort of the behavioral characteristics of the offender who wrote that malware. So when we're looking at this, what's really interesting is that malware and malware author profiling is very similar to in sort of the violent crime world when you're looking at bomb making. And because both of those types of activities are relatively personal to the person who's either building a bomb or writing a piece of malware, there's a lot of little personal niches that are in each type of activity. And so we've used some of the same concepts in bomber profiling that we did in malware author profiling as a way to understand, get a better understanding of who the person is who's writing the malware and writing the code. And is there a difference between, say, someone who's doing it for criminal reasons and someone who's doing it for, say, a nation state purpose? Absolutely. So motivation certainly goes into understanding the threat actor behind the scenes. One of the really interesting aspects that we saw was that 
when we're looking at cybercrime and online crime, each online crime really has a real world correlate. So you take something like vandalism in the real world can be something uh, is this is similar in nature to web defacement in the, in the virtual world. A bank robbery in the real world is similar in nature to a financial exfiltration in the online world. And what we saw was that when we're looking at the actors who commit both types of crimes in both worlds, the motivations and behavioral characteristics are actually quite similar. The big difference is why the actors choose to use a computer as a mechanism to commit the crime. Hmm. Can you take us through, I mean, what are some of the top motivations? So financial is by far the most common motivation that, you, that you'll see that's out there. Sort of thrill is a big one, especially in the cybercrime world. Some of the crimes that we see as more nuisance crimes in the real world are more present and more visible in the online world, but have the same, same motivations there. And then you have the sort of the more sophisticated actors, the nation states that are doing cyber espionage or intellectual property theft that are out there as well. Can you take us through sort of the mindset that goes behind the folks who are doing this? I'm thinking of my sense is that people have a maybe a false sense of security because they're they're sitting behind the keyboard doing something, perhaps something they know they're up to no good, which I guess is different than walking into a bank and, and holding somebody up. Yeah, I think that's true. I think anonymity helps breed certain types of cyber criminals. And I think that is what causes a lot of people who wouldn't commit a crime in the real world to commit crimes in the cyber world. And that's really what we see as the difference between the two populations of individuals is the people who commit a crime in the cyber world, they do it for different reasons. And one of those reasons is they don't have the physical or social ability to do it in the real world, even though if they had those capabilities, they probably would. Huh, that's interesting. W were there any things that you found in your FBI work that was particularly surprising, that was unexpected? I think one of the things that I saw from my time at the FBI is that some of the nation states that we see as, that we assume are very sophisticated and we hear on the news a lot, really make the same types of mistakes that everyday unsophisticated cyber criminals make. We put some of those actors on a pedestal, I think, to a certain degree. And But when you look at it, they are human beings just like the rest of us, and they make very common operational security mistakes. They have also have sort of behavioral characteristics that can be exploited for certain purposes. Hmm. You know, getting back to the work you do with Agari, can you describe for us, how do you all actively engage when it comes to protecting folks against things like business email compromise? One of the things that my team and I do to understand the threats, the threat actors that are targeting businesses is, is engage with them. So we will sort of, we'll get a, an email that's been sent to us by either a customer or one of our internal employees. And it may be a BC email. And what we'll do is we'll start engaging with the threat actor to try to elicit additional information about the accounts that they're using, as well as to get more information about sort of them. So if we can get some artifacts about them that we can then sort of pivot to open source analysis to gather some additional intelligence on them. We also use some proprietary tools as a way to get additional visibility into different aspects of the group, which really gives us really good insight into some functionality and some mechanisms that we don't really see on an everyday basis about these groups. Hmm. So a lot of uh, connecting the dots there, combining the that human capability, but also some automation there as well. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So what are your recommendations for folks to help protect themselves when it comes to things like phishing threats, to things like business email compromise? What do you suggest for folks to do a better job with it? So part of it is, you know, the same types of recommendations that I think we've heard for years. And a lot of it is stopping and thinking about what you're receiving, what you're looking at. Is it contextually appropriate? Is it something that I'm expecting to receive? Does it look right? Does it feel right? And then also from a BEC perspective, you know, verifying the request that you're receiving. Don't just trust what you're seeing. Uh, sort of verify it with the person. And really, when it comes to phishing, those types of behavioral traits are really what phishing attacks exploit. Trust is a big one, fear and anxiety are some other ones. And those are sort of behavioral characteristics that are ingrained in our human behavior about who we are. And it's very hard to override those. But as best as we can, we need to stop and think about what we see before we take any action on an email that we receive. Joe, what'd you think? It was an interesting interview, Dave. I find his comparison of, like, say, bomb makers and malware authors being the similar kind of people interesting. Hmm. Strikes me as, as an interesting parallel that he draws, hmm. as well as you know, web defacers and vandals and bank robbers yeah. and people who exfiltrate cash from electronically. Mm-hmm. I can see there being a methodical nature to the type of work, uh, right. you know, being kind of goal oriented. Yep. Uh, and taking pride in your work. and But also having to separate yourself from the effects that your actions are going to have on other people. Right. That sort of thing. Obviously, a bomb builder, you were talking about loss of life right. versus loss of money. money but, exactly. but, you know, you suppose someone who's um, messing with some kind of industrial control system or something like that could very that well could be lead the same to, thing. Yeah. yeah, it could lead to loss of life. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Also, one of his final statements towards the end of the interview, trust and fear are tough to override. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we as humans do have this innate trust that we use to trust people in our tribes, so, so to speak. Yeah. And fear is one of those things, if you can scare somebody, you can short circuit a lot of their thinking. Right. He said a couple times that you need to pause. Right. And we say that over and over again. Right. Step away, pause, make, talk to somebody. Make a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Give yourself some time to think about, to let those emotions subside. Simmer down. Right. Right. Good advice. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Crane Hassel from Agari for joining us, for taking the time to speak with us this week. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell, executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.